0: Tonight on Arena, June Caldwell and Stephen Sexton on a new collection of essays on the animal world, and Dave Fanning on 50 years of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. But we start this evening with the Olivier Awards, presented annually by the Society of London Theatre to recognise excellence in professional theatre in London. This afternoon, the Society announced their nominations for this year. Uh, and Kildare man of the moment, Paul Meskell, has been shortlisted for a Best Actor, Olivier, for his performance in Tennessee Williams Street, Car Named Desire, that's at the Elmedia Theatre, playing Stanley Kowalski. But also, uh, congrats are due to the Irish National Opera for their Best New Opera nomination for Least Like the Other. This was their opera about the life of Rosemary Kennedy, sister to JFK uh, and her uh, a uh, uh, deal really of undergoing a catastrophic lobotomy at the age of 23 but finally in The Outstanding Achievement in opera Wexford-born soprano Sinead Campbell-Wallace also received a nomination for her performance in Tosca. By English National Opera at the London Coliseum. Delighted to say that Sinead joins me on the phone now. Congratulations, first of all, uh, Sinead, Little did we know when we were speaking—what is it? Maybe a fortnight ago at this stage about your um, Maria Callas <laughs> show. Little did we know that we'd be speaking to you again uh, so quickly. I
1: know, I know. It's absolutely amazing. I'm, I'm, was well, speechless. <laughs> When I heard the news it was absolutely wonderful can 't really believe
0: it well tell me a little bit about the production, and then we can kind of get to uh, uh, how, maybe how surprised you were or had you been getting a lot of praise yeah. for it Tell me about the production first of all Sinead. um
1: well the production it was a it was um a wonderful um a production that you know um uh, it was um originally done i think in um um, in Poland, I believe we had the wonderful assistant director Georg here Zla- mm. who um, who was really. It was such a collaboration with him that um, absolutely allowed me to um, invest a lot of myself. Do you know what, uh, Sinead, I'm going
0: to stop you, Sinead. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going yeah. to try to get you back on a better line. And while we're doing ah, that, there's, we're having okay. a slight problem here. you. You're breaking up all the time. So while you're doing that, um, we're getting you back on that line. We will listen to you singing... Um, the Visi d'Arte are as it is in this particular version because the sing is all of their productions in English. It's an English-language version of Visi d'Arte from Puccini's Tosca. And it is uh, Sinead Campbell-Wallace who's singing here uh, from the, the nominated, the, the performance that won her this nomination for the Laurence Olivier Awards. So a little flavour there of Sinead Campbell-Wallace singing the part of Tosca in English, in fact, because that is how the English National Opera uh, do their uh, particular productions. I think Sinead is, is back on the line with us now. Um, we were saying, Sinead, I was asking you about the, the production itself and the nature of this production, because I think you were very keen that Tosca would sound or would, would be a 21st century woman. We don't have Sinead. We don't have Sinead there at all. I'm going to go to a break and we'll come back after that. No, we're back. We think we have Sinead Campbell-Wallace then. Third time lucky, Sinead. I can hear you laughing, so it's much better. And Third already, time lucky. Yeah, and, and already it's sounding much better as well. I was asking Good. you, Sinead, about the particular production of Tosca that you were involved in with Eno. that yes. has, that has got you this yeah. Olivia Award. You wanted her to be very much, you wanted her to be a 21st century woman rather than some kind of yeah. old fashioned version
1: that's it well it's such it's it's such an iconic role that it's it's often sort of stereotype you know it's a stereotype almost and it can be done in a a kind of a, um, a sort of a generic way because she is an opera singer, you know, that's what you're playing. Mm. And also the music is so difficult. You know, the singing of the role is so difficult that oftentimes the the actual, her actual spirit and, and her heart and her personality gets lost amongst all of that. And I suppose my main aim with this this particular production, this role was to, to make her real, to make her modern um, and to make her actions and reactions um, very sort of applicable and very um, recognisable for today. Um, young women and etc so yeah, yeah that's what I tried to do
0: Because as you say she is this opera singer and she's in, in in love with this guy and she's prepared really to do anything including a, a pretty nasty um, p- policeman who's involved with her or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wants to be involved with her and she may have to pay a price to get her to get her lover freed that's really where the the, the real problem is
1: exactly yeah and and that particular scene in the opera is is incredibly difficult um vocally um but i suppose i just i kind of just threw myself into it you know and um and, uh, and sort of used, used that energy um, and tried to communicate that I guess to the audience Well that, clearly clearly, um,
0: you succeeded in doing it and I was saying <laughs> third third time lucky with our connection fourth time lucky for you in terms of Tosca the, the role itself because you have played this uh, character was... three times before
1: Yeah so that that was actually my fourth uh, Tosca production the first one mm-hmm. I did in, in Germany um, and then I did a, a production at Scottish Opera and then most recently Um, in July I did the Tosca with Irish National Opera at the Borgos Energy Theatre which was absolutely wonderful wonderful production as well so yeah it was sort of uh, you know she's in my bones (laughs) she's in my blood um, at this stage Um, and so yeah I'm I'm just so comfortable you know with it with her um, and I kind of my intention is there, in exactly what I want to um, to achieve, I suppose, and to communicate, and to, to the story I want to tell through her, I is suppose. It,
0: is, it, is it easier, by the way? Because we listened to you performing from the production, and uh, as I said, uh, as we were listening to it, you're singing in English. Is it easier or harder, or what is the difference between singing it in English and singing it in Italian?
1: Um, there's, 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 you know, there's a huge debate about this, I suppose, but. Ostensibly, like when you're singing in Italian, it's it's kind of how you learn to sing. Like we all learn as opera singers, that the first things we sing are in Italian, and so the vowels and and how you produce the sound becomes second nature. And I suppose mm. then when you're you're singing in a different language, particularly like English, um, where where there's the, the vowel sounds are very much darker, much different, and um, you kind of have to almost Italianate the English first, uh, and then and then uh, you know once once you've done that to the vowel, then you know make it understandable, uh, you know in the English language. So it's kind of a technical thing. Um, but of course, it's it's always wonderful, you know, to, to sing, you know, in your own language too. Although, you know, I mean... For me to sing Tosca in Italian is definitely yeah um, yeah much
2: more
0: rewarding. I suppose that's yeah. what it was written in. I so I suppose, yeah, there, there, yeah. Is, there is that aspect. Of it, but but clearly there was no problem with your singing it in English. You're in an you're no. in an, a section here. It's called outstanding achievement in opera. And the other two people who are in there, there there's a designer in there, isn't it as well? And if yeah. uh, this is um, William Ketteridge for his conception and direction of Sybil at the Barbican, uh, and then uh, the designer is Anthony Macdonald for his design of mm-hmm. Alcina at the Royal Opera yeah. House. It seems as if I mean is it unusual or do you know is it unusual for a singer to be in there as opposed to, you know, the director or the designer yeah. or whatever?
1: I I think, I think it's, I think it's quite unusual. Um, I know, for example, because I I was just, somebody mentioned it to me earlier that, um, I think, I believe now I could be wrong on this, but I think the last Irish singer that was nominated was Anne Murray, um, back in 1994 in this category, who is of course a wonderful Mm -hmm. and is a wonderful mezzo-soprano. Um, but I, I, yeah, I think, I think from, from time to time, um, there are, um, but certainly, you know, there's people like (laughs) Placido Domingo, um, Angela Giorgio Roberto Alagna um, um, Joyce Di Donato so it's it's kind of a super starry a very starry um, a very starry company to be in for me yeah,
0: <laughs> definitely listen, <laughs> en- enjoy being there and I'm sure no doubt you will enjoy being in starry company uh, on the night of the awards as well not least of whom with absolutely Paul, Paul, Paul Mescal is up for his uh, performance in, in uh, Streetcar Desire. but uh, heartiest yeah. congratulations it's just a, a text coming in as well, to, uh, so passing them on to you. Delighted to hear about yes. Sinead and her success in London. She was marvelous at the National Concert Hall last week in the Callus Tribute Concert as well, says yeah. Rosemary Cairn from Delgany. And that was what you were speaking yeah. to us as. Listen, it'd be great to see you when, yes. you're, when you're back on, on home ground again, Sinead. And congratulations Absolutely. on the nomination.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you so much for having me. Not great at
0: all. It. That's Sinead Campbell Wallace. Uh, The 2023 Olivia Awards will take place at the Royal Albert Hall on this uh, not this coming Sunday on Sunday the 2nd of April Sinead Campbell-Wallace Paul Meskell the best in luck in their categories and also of course uh, congrats and best luck to Irish National Opera for their best new opera nomination for Least Like the Other all of that at the Olivia Awards the ceremony takes place on Sunday the 2nd of April at London's Royal Albert Hall Animal Lover May be interested to know that cats and dogs, who rule our everyday lives, are now the subject of a new book. Running Feet, Sharp Noses is a new essay collection published by A Books, edited by Adrian Duncan, Nathan O'Donnell, and Neve Dunphy. Other pets and wilder creatures also make the lineup, from foxes and turtles to all manner of bird life. In a series of essays looking at their place, the, at the place of animals in our world and our place in theirs, contributors include the writer. June Caldwell, the poet Stephen Sexton delighted that both of them joining me on the programme this evening, June with me here in studio and Stephen on the line I I just got such a tickle out of the (laughs) idea of a a collection of essays, June based in and around running feet and sharp noses, these these animal themes, is that how you were approached? Have you got something about animals?
3: Yeah, um, well people have um, obviously seen me on social media raving about my two cats, you know, for (laughs) good or worse so yeah, I was approached and asked if I wanted to write an essay on an animal and of course I chose a cat but the the anthology itself is full of other animals you know there's turtles and crows, Mm -hmm. there's frogs, there's everything in here and it's just amazing to see what other people's takes are on animals you know and how we put up with them, how they deal with living with us and it really does make for a fantastic read. It's and people mm. have also aligned very much their own existential crisis to how you know the, how they cope with life and how animals help yep. them cope with crisis. So that's another interesting aspect uh, of the so book.
0: So, Cl- Claudia and Zarko are the two cats <laughs> in question for you. Yeah. How, how do they help you face life's great existential crises?
3: Well, <laughs> well, actually, I got Cloudy when um, just not long after my brother died. So he, she was kind of like a bereavement expert. Oh you know I just wanted something fluffy really I should have gone out and got myself a nice hairy cushion Um, but I got this little cat and she just caused havoc when she came into the home and still does to this day Zarko would you believe by sheer coincidence um, myself and my ex Henry MacDonald whose, whose funeral was earlier today by the way he was living at my mother's house in 2016 when Um, He started, Zarka was a neighbour's cat and he came over the wall and Henry started feeding him. Uh, And then, you know, the cat moved in. There's not very much you can do when a cat moves in, even when your neighbour comes knocking to try and get him back again. So he's been there, like ensconced in the gaff since 2016. Yeah. No moving.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Stephen, um, I'll come back to more about cats in a minute. You don't. You're not. You're not particularly talking about pets in your essays. Your essay, it would have to be said.
2: I'm not talking about pets at all. Um, yes, no, I've, I've written a, a piece uh, about two creatures that I'm quite unfamiliar with. I suppose that is the the fox and and the sparrow. Um, but really, it's not even my story. Um, uh, my my essay is is partly based on, on a story my dad told me um, about his his youth. Um, so yes, it's a it's a story about uh, about foxes. Uh, it's not the friendliest story, I, I must say, and uh, you know it's a, it, it contains some alarming details. But uh, the animal world. Is, uh, is mysterious and it's full of uh, harm and goodness and badness uh, like ours is. Yeah, well, let's, uh, yes, foxes uh, are a very sense, compelling fox.
0: Yeah, let's get a sense of, of the story that your dad told you and I suppose to set this up we need to know that there was a time um, you're from Northern Ireland obviously if, from 1943 through, three, through until 1977 it, there was a, a pest control on foxes so farmers wanted to look after their poultry and their lambs and all of that so there was a bounty on foxes and this is where your your reading takes up we know that if you can get a fox and bring it to a local police station there's money to be had maybe you'd take it from there Stephen I'd love to so my dad was
2: out one day with fellow skilled amateurs his brother Brian and Pat McGinn a man without a tooth in his head and their terrier, Whiskey sniffing out a particular fox which, after some combing and topography, they tracked down to an earth at the edge of the farmland. The dog frightened the fox enough to make it bolt. The men grab it. Usually, it's a whack over the head with a shovel or a 22 rifle that finishes the job. My dad doesn't remember which. To collect the bounty, one presented the fox to a local RUC station. Where the constable on the desk would, with a knife or a pair of scissors, cut off the tip of the fox's tongue. The constable would write out a receipt and pay you the bounty. By removing the tongue, the idea is that you could not, like a dame at a very strange gala, visit station after station with a fox around your shoulders, collecting multiple bounties for the same creature. However, the constable in Hilltown, which was the local station, was young and either lazy or squeamish or both, and wouldn't do it. Will you take it outside and do it yourselves, he said to my dad and his brother Brian and Pat McGinn and Whiskey. The three of them said yes. Naturally, they went on to Rathry Island, Kate's Bridge and Loch Brickland, where by chance they encountered one unwilling constable after another. At Loch Brickland, they called it quits, four times richer than they ought to have been. One fox for the price of four.
0: And that's Stephen Sexton reading from his essay, which is part of the new collection that we're talking about this evening, um, Running Feet, Sharp Noses, Essays on the Animal World. Yeah, (laughs) the wily old fox wasn't wily enough for your dad (laughs) and and his, his group of compatriots there, Stephen.
2: Not at all, not on not on this uh, this occasion. Um, but really, that's what it is. It's kind of a, a crime caper um, in some ways, a very small uh, rural crime, I might say. But uh, nevertheless, um, a, a little bit of local mischief. Absolutely, uh, it's very very compelling.
0: And and Stephen, touching there, June, on you know the idea. Obviously, the fox and the sparrow, they kind of have this kind of fable, kind of mythic status as well. The cat, which is obviously the subject of your essay. Definitely uh, something that has mythic status, magical status, oh, sometimes yeah. witch-like status, in fact, as well.
3: Well, yeah, that'll be down to a pope. Um, he, Pope Gregory the Fourth, who back in twelve thirty-three issued what they call a vox in rama, and it was condemning black cats as an incarnation of Satan so this, I don't know if this is true or not, the narrative goes that you know, cats began to be murdered then all over Europe so by the time the bubonic plague arrived there isn't enough cats to kill the rodents and there you go it's kind of like, yeah, fiendish (laughs) karma, Um, karma always gets you in the end so that's basically what that was about and then it moves on to the whole idea of, um, there was a story about, in in the witchcraft trials, in, in the Thirteenth century as well about women accusing um three women who who magically switched into the form of cats, you know like accusing a man of mm. having attacked them, and he appeared in court with lots of scratches on him and so on and so forth So, oh, which is
0: interesting too because stephen that that 's nipping the tip of the tongue of the fox, I suppose that has uh, that has uh, mythical uh, echoes as well doesn 't it, and you bring this up in the essay. <laughs>
2: I do, yes. I mean, it's. I mean, I, I have it there because it's a. It's quite a. I mean, it's a deeply uncomfortable idea. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's. I mean, even the, the idea of the feel of it is very, very uncomfortable. Um, but it is a theme that that we see all the time. I mean, it's it's all through our literature, and it it means a couple of things really. I mean, I think for for poets or writers or, or people of any kind, it's a, it's a terrifying idea, uh, metaphorically. But mm. the, the idea of, of a person being silenced. That's that's the main thing. Um, and especially, I mean, the the thing that I find most compelling about this story. That, that my dad told me, and and this, you know, the, the reason why I wanted to retell it to some extent is there's a very, you know, big mysterious period of time um, in in all of our lives, in our parents' lives, in our grandparents' lives, um, and all that silence, you know, it could it could go nowhere, um, and yeah. you know, there's something about this story that I wanted to preserve in some way.
0: Maybe we could hear a section from from your essay now, June, if you if you wouldn't mind. How much of a context do we need here? Although I think you're you're kind of telling us about the the various qualities of the cat here, aren't you?
3: Yes. So, like, basically, I kind of interspersed it just with some personal mm. bits and pieces about living with cats. So, growing up in Ballymun in the 70s, no one cared about cats. It was dogs all the way, followed by Top of the Pops, cardboard packets of reconstituted food and fear of priests. There was just one cat on the road, Fairy Ford. His proprietor was a feminist, instrumental in maternity leave being introduced into Ireland. And some of the neighbours quipped about her needing a cat, i.e. being a witch. That long-held, injurious association, women plus cats equals witch equals unknown powers equals ungodly. Ferry was a robust marmalade who spent his days watching us play, but he never played with us. He had zero interest Cats can't be bothered so much of the time. They lack the cognitive skills to interpret human language, but they recognise when you talk to them and can also recognise the sound of their name. Cat behaviourists believe an adult feline's intelligence is comparable to that of a two-year-old human toddler. Cats stare at us and their eyes glow and it scares us because we cannot see in the dark. Or as one Washington Post journalist put it in yet another cat article in Time for Yet Another Halloween, The glow was not the most unsettling thing about cats' eyes. Unlike tigers and jaguars and other big cats, house cats have vertically slit pupils, a common feature among small nocturnal predators that hunt close to the ground. What else has vertically slit pupils and also occasionally hisses? The serpent. And who made his first biblical appearance as a snake? That's right, Satan. (laughs)
0: <laughs> That's June Caldwell with a section from her essay I love the title by the way What's a New Pussycat <laughs> the title of the essay They lack the cognitive skills to interpret human language or they pretend they lack the cognitive skills to interpret human language June
3: I think it's all pretense I think they're alien anthropologists honestly <coughs> just they're sussing us out and just you know feeding the information mm-hmm. back
0: Briefly Stephen you might uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the second essay that you um, from the book that you um, wanted to, wanted to talk about this is Vonnegut's Pure Animal Instinct*.
2: Oh, it's a marvelous, marvelous essay. Uh, it's a marvelous essay among many marvelous essays. I mean, this is a, a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, but yes, I, I wanted to say a, a little bit about it that I think is really, really interesting. I mean, uh, Vonnegut has this wonderful piece. Um, it, it's about it's about imaginary animals, uh, which I think is a wonderful <laughs> way of addressing this topic. Um, it it, it uh, starts with a little bit about a a, a creature called Hote. He's a, a donkey, in other words, Don Quixote, which uh, took me longer than I care to admit to get the joke. But, well, thank you, uh, thank you, joke.
0: thank you for helping me on that one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it took me a little while, but uh, you know she writes really wonderful things um, about animals of, of you know imaginary and and, yeah. and real. But what she she has this wonderful phrase in it uh, where, where she says that she wants to uh, take her animals metaphor free. She says, um, and that's something that I think, as as June was saying, tends to happen across a lot of these essays in lots of really interesting ways, yeah. where these animals. They become symbols. They become ways for for people of understanding family members or, or their family situations Abs- or their pasts or Abs- everything in the ways yeah, that yeah, I have um, um,
0: done it. Briefly, briefly. Let me go back. You
2: know, wonderful.
0: Yeah, but let me briefly go back to you, June. And I love the essay that you chose as well, Edward Hoagland and The Courage of Turtles. I knew, yeah. more about, I knew nothing about turtles before this. I knew an awful lot about them afterwards.
3: Well, snap, it's just so incredible as a piece of writing over just a couple of pages. We, he writes, first of all, about the muddy waters in the reservoir systems of Connecticut. And he brings us right up into yeah. modern day New York. Um, teaching us about small turtles, big turtles, what they eat, what they do, how they hunt, mm. and he basically says he comes he comes to love them because number one he 's allergic to fur, but secondly that he sees all other animals in them, you know they have long necks like giraffes, they look like hippopotamus underneath the water, they hunt like mongoose, and it just he brings you yep. on this journey. Um, and also, you know, warns us about climate change and the impact yeah. of, the, of housing on the animal environment.
0: And finally, he talks about turtleneck sw- sweaters, which again, I hadn't <laughs> thought about till he mentions, of course, it's a turtleneck. It's like <laughs> a turtle's neck. Listen, it, it, it is a fascinating read. The essays, uh, uh, both your own and and those that you mentioned, that's June Caldwell and Stephen Sexton talking to us about Running Feet, Sharp Noses, noses. Essays on the Animal World, edited by Adrian Duncan, Nathan O'Donnell and Nave Dunphy and published by PVA books Pop Art Pioneers is a new exhibition at Gormley's Fine Art in Dublin. It showcases works by Andy Warhol, Roy Lichtenstein, Keith Herring and Jean-Michel Basquiat. The exhibition features several of Warhol's famous portraits, Campbell's Soup Cans as well, Lichtenstein's The Den, Herring's bold graphic designs and Basquiat's print of his famous work called Untitled. With me in studio this evening, Jessica Fahey, who has been to Gormley's and will explore the historical and cultural context in which these artists worked and how their art had in fact, reflected the society they were living in at the time, Uh, or maybe, in fact, hit out at the societies they were living in at the time. Give us that context. These, These were real rebels, really, is what we're talking about, Jess.
4: Yeah, it's one of those things I find so interesting, and you kind of see it first with Warhol, is that on one hand, he can only exist because he's American and he comes from that capitalist background in society, but he uses what's popular there to kind of make a point against the lifestyle the people live, the things they're interested in, the fact they're obsessed with money, while he's also obsessed with money. Mm. So it's like a kind of vicious circle. But when you try to sort of talk about it, you can't escape it. And I think that's what makes it so interesting. Because then you get put into that place too and you have to start asking yourself maybe questions about those type of yeah, things too. I,
0: I, and I guess one of so there are all of these questions being thrown out there as well. But one of the things that's often, one of the criticisms that's often levelled at pop art, yeah, it's all about the idea. It's all about a critique of society. It's all about all of those things. But the execution of the art itself leaves a lot to be desired. Do you agree with that?
4: Well, you see, this is the thing. It comes down to whether or not you believe the concept's more important or the Mm. actual making is more important. And I mean, that can go for so many different things even outside the art world. But ultimately... I think if somebody has something interesting to say, whatever way they make it, whether they're the physical Mm. producer of the work is less interesting to me than just having something to say not to say I don't admire someone who's a good painter or a good sculptor but it's not the essential thing I don't think
0: uh, actually it for you the content is I think so well, yeah and it doesn't matter is, if
4: it's just pretty or beautiful or it doesn't really matter what the content is but that's um, it has to say something it does yeah it
0: has to say something alright we've 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 tweeted or let's tweet an image as we go along tweet several images as we go along here at RTE arena to follow what we're doing And it's Andy Warhol first Um, Mick Jagger. Mm -hmm. Mick Jagger. Just tell us a little bit about this particular image and how, I suppose,
4: emblematic it is in terms of Warhol's work. So in the 70s and 80s, Warhol pretty much concentrated on portraits and they tended to be people that um, were already famous. So in the 60s, he liked the idea of making someone famous. In the 70s and 80s, he was more just obsessed and interested in fame and particularly in... The kind of iconic status of people like Mick Jagger. So the fact that this is a singer in a band, and they're treated like a god on earth. So he uses the sort of imagery, um, of you know taking this photograph and turning it into, um, a, a kind of artwork by blocking out certain sections of it. So it's Jagger's face and his um head is tilted back and you can see his neck, but then mm. other parts of him are sort of blocked out around the edges, um, and in doing so make us sort of re-look at it and think about it and think about it as a work of art. So if you take essentially a pin-up poster of a rock star and turn it into a work of art, again, it makes us ask questions. and We start to think yeah. about, you know, not just what art means, but what does this new type of secular idolatry mean? Yeah,
0: and it's not just that the parts of it are blocked out, but there's also a kind of a pen drawing, mm. not quite getting the profile right, but sort of echoing the profile of Jagger's profile.
4: Yeah, so Warhol said that his ambition is to get it perfectly wrong. So it's not going to be an outline exactly Mm. around where his eyes and nose and mouth are. It's just slightly off that. And because it's slightly off that, it essentially makes us, again, think about the image as a made image, as, um, you know, something that is... um, uh, kind of uh, one of those things that where you know the artist has to make decisions, but it also gives a kind of liveliness to it and a an energy to it and. I think it kind of draws you in a little bit because like that it is off and that makes us you know um, a little uncomfortable Mm. maybe because we're so used to colouring in between the lines when someone goes outside the lines uh, it shakes us a little.
0: Let me just take another one more Warhol image actually because I suppose he is the big one when we talk about pop art really is is he the daddy really of it all?
4: Yeah he is not of conceptual art Mm. but I suppose of pop art I mean it actually technically starts in Britain in the 1950s with people like Richard Hamilton and their collages but Warhol is really the one who I think truly understands yeah. it and you know um, brings it into the public forum much more so uh,
0: the one that I'm tweeting now at RT Arena is Superman
4: yes so this is uh, also made of uh, an extraordinarily expensive material. So essentially with screen prints, you're you know working with ink and um, not necessarily expensive materials. But in this case, to add up uh, a little more value, perhaps to the mm-hmm. work intrinsically, he's added diamond dust. So the secondary image, the one that's not perfectly overlaid. Yes, yeah,
0: again, similar to the, the Mick Jagger profile thing, there's exactly kind of that. a second version of the image a little bit to the, to the right-hand side of the picture
4: yeah and with screen prints they're not all identical mm. so he said he liked this idea of the chanciness of it you know that gave him sort of excitement that you, you don't know exactly what it's going to look like and every time it will look slightly different so then he starts to enjoy that and then add elements like the diamond dust here and in a way it works very well I think for Superman because of the whole sort of Superhuman elements and kryptonite, and you start to think about what about the
0: Warhol using this image? I mean, it's not his conception that it isn't even his image, I suppose. He did the same with the Campbell's soup tin, didn't he? You know, he kind of took it and made it his own.
4: And it's a question that comes up about pop artists all the mm. time because, I mean, technically they are doing something that is against, you know, copyright law by taking these images and using them. But they saw them as images that already belonged to the public. They were already public images. That's handy, isn't it? I know, I know. <laughs> would <laughs> they feel that right. about their own... Uh, no. Nope. Yeah, I didn't think <laughs> they would, yeah.
0: That, you, tried, try saying that, that, Andy Warhol, that's my image.
4: Absolutely, and this is, again, he's a complete mm. contradiction, but he's very yeah. aware of that and he kind of... Threw plays
0: into it it. let's go on to to Roy Lichtenstein maybe Mm. again give us the context for where he fits into this overall movement
4: yeah so he's an interesting one because um he initially was painting as a more expressionist and then abstract expressionist. Mm. And the abstract abstract expressionist in the 50s in America, it was all about the individual artists creating a work that sort of revealed their inner psyche. And in doing so, that would tune into something universal. Yeah. And these pop artists, like Lichtenstein, come along and, and even though he was doing that work himself, he started to think it was a bit foolish and that actually there was already universal images. So in his abstract expressionist works, he starts hiding little images of Mickey Mouse and different things like that just to kind of poke fun at Jackson Pollock and, you know, all that kind of uh, macho art that was going on. Well, we're we're
0: tweeting the den now at RTE Arena. So, again, again, this looks like a fairly straightforward, almost comic book like illustration
4: yeah so he starts with comic books and he does Mickey Mouse because his his son challenged him and said I bet you can't draw that good Uh, (laughs) and that's where he started (laughs) in doing this sort of more straightforward pop art but actually we're looking at something that's closer to his work in the 90s when he's moved away from comic books and gone even more popular in that these are um, based on similar things you'd find in the golden pages so for ads for furniture or ads for you want to buy a lamp or you want to get a window fixed. So he's saying this as the true popular art, even more so than comic books, that this is something that's legible, it's universal, people recognise that the things are, they're simplified for a reason um, and for him there's no reason why this can't be considered great art too. And pop art's very much about breaking down those elitist elements of the art world and um, by introducing these types of styles. And Again, subjects.
0: and it's, it's, this is all part of the contradiction, we're talking about the elitist element of the art world, one of which which is the amount of money that you have in your pocket. I'm guessing, certainly now, if you were looking for a Liechtenstein you'd want to have very deep pockets. How yeah. quickly did that come you know, how quickly was his elitism? Could he throw it to the side these ideas, well I'll take all the money that an elitist might be able to give me.
4: Yeah, you see this is the thing, because it immediately becomes that. And I and I mean it's still if you look today at the prices, there's one example of work by him that apparently went through a private sale for 165 million. Now whether or not this is true, we yeah. don't fully know, but certainly his his original works are in the 40, 50 million. So it is this um almost inevitable contradiction that ends up happening. That as soon as they become part of the elite, then they're part of the problem they were going against in the first place. But that happens quite a bit in the history of art anyway. You know, that's not new, essentially. You break through and you try to do something new and then you become the new, you know, flavour of the day.
0: Right, let's move on then to Keith Herring um, and his Pop Shop series is in here. I'm I'm going to pick... um, I like the one with. Um, see if I can. Put, I'm just seeing which one I, I, I can get. Whether it's number three or number four. No, let's go for uh, the, the first one that I put up there. Uh, sorry, now I'm going along. It's the one where the two men effectively make the square in the middle. So that is uh, pop. It's image number three in our set of images that we have on file um, from from uh, from Herring. Mm. That's just explain the the image. Maybe to give us a sense of what the image shows for those who aren't looking at it.
4: So essentially, his figures are very simple. Human forms that are um, almost like they're made of plaster, scene with like little round heads mm. and uh, um, very simplified bodies. And because they're so malleable, even in his mind, he can make their arms become uh, a square if they connect together. So, this is um, very typical of his work this kind of melding um, of one body into another. He uses a lot of lines to suggest motion and movement. Um, he's very into music, so he liked the idea of creating the sense that they're sort of moving or dancing or something's going going on even in a static image or dog barking is another famous one Mm. of his or um, there's like a glowing baby is another one but the thing that's interesting about him that relates to what we were just saying is that the pop shop was actually a shop he set up in Soho. And the reason he set it up was that his images were being used all around the world and he wasn't in charge of the copyright. He wasn't making t-shirts mm. and mugs and things out of it. So he set up the pop shop to try and, you know, um, be more in charge. And then the rest of the art world attacked him for it and called him a sellout and said that he was, you know, absolutely yeah. not no longer an artist because he was doing that.
0: Finally, I'm, I'm tweeting uh, Basquiat's flexible um, at RT Arena if you want to see the image here uh, authorized print of an original painting created in 1984 sold for 45.3 million dollars at Phillips in May of 2018 mm-hmm. and that's on display is, is it the, the 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 print that sold
4: for that amount of money no the no, original the, yeah, painting the yeah. original
0: sold for that so this the, the print is uh, the authorized print is on display in Gormleys
4: and it's the same size as the original painting which for Basquiat's really important because um he's associated with graffiti and being a street artist but actually that was very minor part of his career, but that idea of painting on a large scale in a way that you can't escape it and that it's very um forceful essentially. Mm-hmm. So the fact that the print is as large does really help with understanding it. Um, for him it was almost like an obsessive compulsive thing. He just had to make art and when you look at his career and there's about a thousand or so paintings you know that we know he made some of them are on, on a fridge door, some of them on his girlfriend's t-shirt. Yeah. You know, it was just wherever he could paint he painted. He did. Um, but to see one of them in Dublin is rare. We don't yeah. actually get to see that um, much. Of I guess that's what
0: this exhibition holds. It is that, that yeah. these are probably things that you will seldom get to see all in one place.
4: Yeah, and they're going to disappear into someone's private collection. Unfortunately, not mine. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they'll be gone soon. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah,
0: if I'm not in next week, you'll know that I'm busy buying. <laughs> Uh, thanks for coming into us this evening Jessica that's it Uh, Jessica Fahey speaking to us about pop art pioneers showcases works by Andy Warhol Roy Lichtenstein Keith Herring and Jean-Michel Basquiat it's at Gormley's in Dublin through until March the 18th and you can find out full details on gormleys.ie tomorrow March the 1st 2023 marks 50 years since the world first opens its ears to an album that was to be hailed as one of the greatest feats of musical experiment songwriting and sonic engineering in popular music history. The Dark Side of the Moon was actually the eighth album from British progressive rock band Pink Floyd. It gave us uh, countless buried moments that each new listen covers. It gave us instantly recognisable sound, money particular, and it gave us the epic Us and Them. You go for <laughs> a version of us and them, uh, from somebody's version of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. I was, I, I wanted to hear us, 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 us. <laughs> the uh, them, them. Yeah. Uh, Dave Fanning is with me to discuss uh, Dark Side of the Moon. 10 song collection went on to sell 45 million copies, spent a staggering wow. 14 years in the Billboard album chart and as I say Dave, is, Dave Fanning is with me to take a look back at one of the most momentous albums in rock history is that too big a thing to be saying about no, it, Dave? No
5: it's not it is one of the most in fact it's so big it's like if somebody says what's your favourite album you actually can't pick that that's not out no there it's a thing you know it's, it's like it's just so huge I mean <clears throat> the band were huge when this came out mm. the band were huge before this came out but this just changed everything I don't think they really knew that it was going to change everything but at the same time when it came out it did
0: So talk to me about where they were before Dark Side of the Moon kind of hit the, Okay hit, well like the I
5: used to go to town bottom of Grafton Street Nassau Street to Padd and Sound Cellar with two friends every week and one of us had to buy an album even if we didn't have the money properly and that was one of the only times you could hear music mm. by buying the damn thing and reading about it there was a programme on BBC Radio at the time called Sounds of the 70s at this time actually seven to eight every evening that's where you heard this music it wasn't that easy to hear this music at all so when this album came out Pink Floyd had had about seven albums out already and like we had known the Sid Barrett albums if you like Piper at the Gates of Dawn and um, A Saucer Full of Secrets and that but the previous couple of albums there was Oma Goma as well which like was so mad and double album and the best track on it is called Several Species of Small Furry Animals Gathered Together in a Cave Grooving with a Pict etc even the cover of it like wow you'd, you'd, you'd yeah. look at it for hours and you'd honestly thought that at five o'clock when they stopped recording they'd change into you know kind of cricket gear and you know have a gin and tonic it was just it was so mm. far away from where we were so the two albums beforehand were the two that meant so much to me one was Adam Hart Mother and one was Metal Adam Hart Mother had one long 23 minute track which Pink Floyd hates I think it's brilliant I love it it's got about five pieces in it the two middle ones are awful but the beginning and the end the main motif brilliant but the best thing they've ever done is on the next album called Metal and another. 20 minute track called Echoes and again the same thing five pieces the middle bit's not great but Echoes is just the best so when this thing came out we were ready for it no problem yeah, did it, I think it was amazing when it came out no it's just it's the new Pink Floyd album yeah,
0: so I was going to ask you about that because I was listening back to it today and you, you, when you're listening off, off a digital platform or even off a CD you don't get the same sense as you do of the LP and picking the LP up and, yeah. and, and looking to see where, where are the little grooves the grooves yeah. Yeah, yeah well of course
5: the whole thing ran into itself like That's Sergeant Pepper point. did seven years before yeah, that I mean because
0: so. it is if, if, if we were in having a classical music chat and we'd be saying it's through composed
5: oh really is that, that what I, oh sorry that, sorry what I was saying go. ran into itself it's through composed
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but that is that is what happens here you know you, you can't really I was saying this earlier on today you know pick a song uh, uh, pick a song there aren't really tracks well, no and in fact the funny thing, thing about se. that is
5: something that people don't know so there's about four instrumentals on it people say, really there's an instrumental I thought it was all wait what Like, you don't yeah. realise there are instrumentals on the album even because there are like all the bits in the middle as well all the pieces I mean, from the very beginning with Nick Mason with this mutated kind of beat drum thing that he's got yeah. going and it only lasts about a minute before it goes into breathe and like it's kind of uh, it gives you the whole pressé around there of what the whole album is kind of about and what it's about is Roger Waters for the first time ever wrote every single lyric madness, time, money etc.
0: Let's listen to it let's listen to how it, it starts off um, speaking Speak to me and then moving in, in to breathe. Yeah. very hard but I have to do it <laughs> there you go bye bye um, that is um, speak to me the opening kind of collage of it sounds is the, that's on, why
5: I say the madness the time the money they're all yeah. in that one yeah, you piece you hear the little chingle yeah. the
0: Dave Fanning with me speaking about Dark yeah. Side of the Moon which is 50 years old tomorrow in fact I think was yeah, that's right, yeah. The yeah. so um, as you were saying Dave as we were listening there you hear the little tinkle of the money. Yeah,
5: and the spoken word bits there as well, yeah. which are all. Throughout yeah, t- who,
0: you know this. I mean, you don't know Jerry O'Driscoll for <laughs> crying out loud. <laughs> Jerry was
5: old the, pal, no, was he? no, no, no. no. <laughs> First of all, Chris Anderson was one of the guys. He was a roadie. He says, the, mm. but the, the more Irish accent is uh, uh, Jerry O'Driscoll. And he, his, his profession was doorman at Abbey Road Studios. He wow. was the doorman. At, and he, yes, he was Irish.
0: Yeah. At Debbie Roach, what a place to be. At yeah, moment, I know. Right? Yeah, there yeah. Some, there yeah, some stories exactly. there. Now, I think there's even a little bit of rude language in that opening section. Ah, yeah. listen for crying out loud. <laughs> give me a break.
5: I mean, the album itself, like you were just saying there while that bit was playing, mm. it really does stand up. I mean, it wasn't just because it was a sonic thing. It wasn't just that when people bought stereos from 75 to 80, the only thing they would ever let the assistants in the shop play is Dark Side of the Moon. I mean, for every, like the standing up on the sonic side, I remember I was at the, the it's gonna sound great. The Cannes film festival, but like there's loads of people all dressed perfectly, mm. uh, perfectly all going up these steps. And I was away up at the top of the steps, so I thought when the stars came out, which was Sean Penn and John Travolta for some movie I can't remember, and uh, what they called the, John Cassavetes and they all came out. I thought they'd be photographed there, they, but they came all the way up the steps beside us. So I'm in loads of these photos there. And there's all these kind of um, speakers all down, and brilliant speakers, and they play time, uh, uh, yeah, time. And it's mm. just the sound of it. It's just on a beautiful evening in the south. Of France is just
0: perfect,
5: and it still sounds as good today.
0: Well, I I listened to it today. listened to it right right through from you know, and yeah, there is a break. Which, which is just before Money, yeah. which is, if you like, it's the, not if you like, it is the first song on Side 2. So there would have been a natural break, kind of like the second movement yeah, you, of a big like symphony. Yeah, you, you mean you,
5: you didn't th- buy two copies of two
0: turntables and start one immediately? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you had to turn, you had to turn yeah. the record to do that. Yeah. But, it, you know, when you listen to what's going on in it, you have, you have Stockhausen in there, you have Steve Reich in there, you have all of these big kind of art music influences from New York getting these guys in Britain. Yeah, but you know a funny thing that like when you look
5: back on lyricists and the best in the world in terms of rock music and people go for their Leonard Cohens and Joni Mitchells and Paul Simons and Bob Dylan, et etc and you wouldn't necessarily point to a dark side of the moon but actually... The way he put a lot of this stuff together, Roger Waters wrote it all, it really is pretty damn good. He's got some very good stuff about growing old or about, not so much growing old as, as much as about your life starts at three and four and don't wait till you, like your mother says, go to school and go to college and now it starts. It's already like well on, you know? Mm. And by the time you're 24, the next day you're 34 and the next day you're 44. And that's really what he's saying all the time in a lot of the songs. And it's like, he says it very well. He says it a lot and better than I've just said it.
0: A relatively young man making these...
5: Uh, yeah, he, he has his demons and like his biggest demon of all was the fact that he was five months old when his father who was a pacifist went to fight in the Second World War he was a, a conscientious objector but then he said "No, wait a minute my country is more important than my religion and everything else so he went over he joined up went to Italy and was killed within a couple of weeks uh, yeah. uh, fighting in the Second World War and he just thought the pointlessness and the madness and the stupidity of it all he's constantly writing about and talking about his yeah, father Yeah, so
0: you can understand why there might be some yeah. existential angst in there as well however, one of the there are many great moments. One of the great moments on the album is totally wordless. It does involve a voice. Let's have a listen to a little bit of The Great Gig in the Sky. Yes, that's that that's the voice of Claire Torrey that's doing all of that just yeah but at
5: the time remember like oh yeah great okay get out she just left the studio and said god I made a mess of that you know, yeah she thought oh, wildly yeah, I mean, over the it, top i embarrassed made, like, they weren't even going to use it on the album necessarily it was just they didn't really know what they wanted P.P. Arnold was supposed to do it she's on the album actually and she says in her Soul Survivor um, book that she released last year that she couldn't do it because of some reason mm. but she did say to Claire Torrey that her mother P.P. Uh, Arnold's mother is really scared of death and you know like, the you could try that part. So she goes completely mad about being scared of death and raging against the dying of the light, etc. And then it's all calm, accepting death, which is the way supposedly Claire Torrey did it. I don't know. Oh, well, there you go. Well, on. worth uh, thirty five quid about, or, or whatever she got.
0: Yeah, she got very small money. She got a bit 000, five, she, she got a bit more later on
5: the court, and she gets a credit in the writing now. Yes, cause
0: yeah, because she 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 just improvised that, and yeah, she was just given a, a, a studio fee. And yeah, and then so you decided no I want a little bit more than that but they probably should have just given it to me I have they? no idea you know, come yeah, on. Whatever, you know. I'm sure they made plenty of money out of it, with it. Yeah, <laughs> they could afford to yeah. give away a couple of million I still have thought it they have thought Mark Mark was going to sell
5: 45 million copies though <laughs>
0: no um, I suppose we should finish with with money it, this is kind of the only song that you could play but you'd still want 6 minutes and 30 yeah this
5: was a hit single too which I'd forgotten about actually I didn't realise that which I, I didn't think of anything this album as being a single I think this album as being one whole piece
0: yeah, so you have to kind of start at the beginning yeah. and keep going to the yeah. end. So, um, what is it, to use that wonderful phrase for you, Dave Fanning, what is the legacy of Pink Floyd? Do you know what
5: it is? that the, the fact that I think Br- uh, Brit Floyd have been here about eight times and the Australian Pink Floyd, seven or eight. I hate to say, I'm oh, sorry, I've been to everything I want of them. I go all the time and when the Claire Torrey bit comes on, the person is just as good. They all do exactly what you want. It is jukebox. I know it's, that's what it is for me. Like I mean, that's the, I saw the recent one during covid But you know the way we're in the Olympia, and every second seat wasn't allowed to be sat out, and they had to do it in the afternoon. It was terrible. But every other time, it's been brilliant. It's just a great album, it really is. And the next album was just as good. Wish you were here. The next one after that, by by the time of the wall, forget it. No interest. We'll
0: we'll we'll listen to a bit of money. Thanks for coming in, Dave. Oh, yeah. I listened, as I said, to the whole album right through today, and it's as fresh as if it was made yesterday, not 50 years ago, which is the reality of things. Released in the United States 50 years ago on March the 1st, 1973, The Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. Dave Fanning, delighted to have Dave in uh, with us to speak about that. And that is our lot for this Tuesday evening. Amandine, uh, Liam Murphy and Paula Shields were the researchers. Amandine Passa-Divine was the broadcast coordinator. Harry Bookless was on sound this evening. Tonight's programme produced by Ola McGowan. Talk to you tomorrow night. Once again, seven o'clock here on RT Radio 1. And John Creedon will be with you after the news.